G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. The Word of God is objective and final. So if you have emotions or feelings or desires that don't line up with Scripture, and we all do, come on, we all do, then it's your feelings and emotions that has to conform, not the Scripture. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello and welcome. This is Today with Jeff Vines. And Pastor Jeff is continuing a three-part series talking about sexuality, identity and Jesus. To support the message, he's reading from Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. Pastor Jeff's big question in this message is, is there a biblical sexual ethic? You may have guessed, but just a warning, there is some language and themes in today's message that may not suit younger listeners. Let's hear from Pastor Jeff now. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis 2. Uh, verse 19, and let me just remind you of a couple of things. Number one, we're handling a very difficult issue. I don't, I don't think I can ever remember a time when I prepare messages in a series and I thought, okay, be very careful how you say that. Be very careful how you... Because the last thing I want is for anything that I say to be misconstrued and misunderstood. So I'm very careful. I'm trying to choose my words and I'm praying. I'm on my knees praying, God, give me the right words at the right time, the right place. Second, be patient. Remember, we say we can't answer every question in one sermon. That's impossible. So if you, don't have, if you don't get something that you're really wondering about answered, wait, be patient. It'll come. And then third, you have to listen to these sermons in the context of all messages. Now, there's a few things, though, that we have to agree upon, and I've tried to stress this throughout the series. And the first is this. You know, we are Christ followers, right? And that means we follow Jesus, right? I mean, that's who we are. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, one of my favorite verses says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, to the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. So the Bible tells us God spoke to us in the past to the prophets. In these last days, in the days of Scripture until the second coming, He has spoken to us through his son. So if we want to know the will of God, we look at his son. Now, the question is, where do we discover anything about Jesus? And the answer is the scriptures. The Bible says that all scriptures God breathed. Even Jesus himself said the scripture cannot be broken. He said that not one jot or tittle will pass away until it is fulfilled, completed. And Revelation 22 says, don't you dare add or take away from scripture. In fact, the result of doing that, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in the scroll. That's pretty aggressive. Don't take away, don't add. So we follow Jesus and we live by the scriptures. And we said that the word of God 
is objective and final. So if you have emotions or feelings or desires that don't line up with scripture, and we all do, come on, we all do, then it's your feelings and emotions that has to conform, not the scripture. All our desires and feelings and emotions, whatever they are, as a Christ follower are brought under the subjection of God's word that is objective and final. And there's something else we've said. God's word is not arbitrarily given. He gives his word because he loves us. So it's not only the good news that Christ has redeemed us and all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's also the truth that if you and I want to know how to flourish in this life, we look at the words of scripture and we follow them. Commands and precepts are all related to design. You with me? The commands and precepts of scripture are all related to design. This is the instruction book of how to hold your life together and how to flourish. Therefore, when somebody asks me a simple question, like Pastor Jeff, why can't you Christians be more affirming of the LBGTQ community, affirming of gay and lesbian relationships, transgender, and those struggling with gender dysphoria, if by affirming... You mean putting our arms around someone and saying, I acknowledge your feelings and value you as a person who's been created in the image of God, then we stand ready to do exactly that, right? But if by affirming, you mean agreeing that you've chosen the best way to live and to flourish, that you are in harmony with God's heart for you, when you live a life that violates God's parameters, then if we love you, how can we? How can we? That would be like a father who watches his children live in a way that's detrimental to the health and vitality and flourishing of the child, and he doesn't say anything at all. That's not love, that's apathy, and apathy is worse than hate. So please hear me now, and hear our hearts here. We said from the beginning, we're all sinners. We all have desires that sometimes we all act upon, right? And Jesus has placed his love in the genuine Christ follower, in their hearts. And the same scripture that tells us to sow compassion for the poor, to pray for those who persecute us, to love our neighbors as ourselves, also tells us to proclaim the good news that sets the captives free and heals the brokenhearted. And that's why we do it. We believe Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? We believe that God is on our side. We believe that God wants us to flourish. We believe that his law is not given arbitrarily. It's motivated out of his love for us. So then the ultimate question, the one that we answer this week is, is there a biblical sexual ethic? Is there something in the Bible that tells us, what is the purpose for sex? Who's it for? Why was it given? And we can logically assume that God would know the answer to these questions because as the creator and designer Creator and designers know the purpose for which something is made and the manner in which it's been designed. So God's going to know. Now, I'm going to read a passage to you. I'm going to read it carefully. And this is where the Hebrew narrative, again, is very precise. The words are precise. It's the beauty of the Hebrew and Greek language. I don't think it's an accident that God decided to reveal his word to us in the original languages of Hebrew and Greek because they're so precise. And they've been studied for years. Here is the biblical sexual ethic for humanity. And you go back to the created order or the creation account. I'm in Genesis 2, 19. Now the Lord, God, 
had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see why he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. What a cool thing that would be. What do you call, what do you think about this? Well, I'll name that hippopotamus. What? You know. <laughs> so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why, look carefully now, that is why, or for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, Marriage is ordained by God. It's his idea. So male and female, as we learned last week, are not social constructs. They came from God. And marriage is not a social construct. God ordained marriage as a gift. And as a result, marriage and male and female are sacred things. Now, God says it's not good for man to be alone, so he causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam. He brings forth woman. Then he tells Adam why he brought forth a woman. Someone said Adam doesn't care why. When he saw Eve, he just said, come over here. (laughs) Right? And he said, whoa, man. That's an old joke, but a goodie. Whoa. All right, you got it. So Hebrew narratives, as we've said before, are superb. And the more you read the Bible, the more you go, wow. Man, the Word of God knows us better than we know ourselves. Now, one of its features is called progression or chronological progression or sequential progression. When you look at the Hebrew narrative, there were, it's, it's written a lot like poetry in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, by the way. And when you read the narrative, you come to this section that I just read, and it has all the markers and identifications of what is called sequential progression, which means this. This, then that, then that, then this, then this, then that. Get it out of order? You've messed everything up. Now, not every Hebrew narrative is written like that, but this is. So go back for a moment to Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. Then God said in verse 18, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now I got to talk about this just for a second. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too long, but the Hebrew word for helper is exer. It's used 21 times in the Old Testament. It means one who acts and assists in fulfilling the task. So it's not primarily or merely rather companionship. We're told that Adam needs a helper. What is a helper? So Evidently, God looked at what he is doing and he said, it's not good for man to try to achieve the task I've given him all alone. Now, what is the task God gave him? (sighs) To work and keep the garden. And those commands are those, here's what you're going to do. Here's how you're going to work and and till. He said, you're going to be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue, and have dominion. Now, think about it. Without Eve, Adam would not be able to reproduce. Already, we have one of the purposes not the ultimate, not the only, of intimacy, sex, one of which is reproduction. Without Eve, Adam would not be able to feel, subdue, and have dominion. Without Eve, Adam would not be able to work and keep. 
And, the, and God looks at him and says, you know, it's not good for you to try this alone. Now, I can tell you after being married for many years, this is a team effort. You know as well as I do, every man in this room knows that without your woman, you'd be lost. You'd be making some serious errors. And every woman in the room, if you're honest, you'd be out of control without your man. We all would be. Come on, we... This is what I mean. This is what the scripture means by we need each other. Most callings require a team effort. And I know I would not be who I am today without my wife. And I know she would not be who she is today without me. It is a team. It is mutual respect. It is mutual submission. It is mutual effort together. Now, God says, if this is what I'm asking man to do, prudence would indicate he needs some help. And we do, don't we, men? Now, here's the problem, and this is why I'd like to go down the rabbit hole at another at a future date. Does this mean mankind cannot achieve these things without a helper? Some of them, yes. You can't be fruitful and multiply. You need a helper. Does it mean that singleness is a curse and unfulfilling? No. Now, you have to understand, through the gamut of Scripture, you learn that singleness can actually be a calling. It can actually be an advantage. It can actually be a gift. Now, listen to what a gay Christian man writes. A gay Christian man who's a respected author and who's decided that he is not going to act upon his temptations. There's no sin in the temptation. Man, if that was sin, we'd all be in trouble. But he's not going to act. And he's come to that conclusion, Bossy. He's begun to realize that the ultimate relationship is not between man and woman but between a man or woman and his or her God. Let me read the quote. He says, marriage here on earth is not ultimate. It's the penultimate. The ultimate awaits us in eternity and you were created for it regardless of whether you're single or married. When you feel certain discontentment in your marriage, even when your marriage is healthy and good, this is normal. There's only one marriage that will bring you ultimate contentment. Heaven will mean complete union and consummated glory with Christ. What greater joy is there than that? Now, what he's saying is what the Bible teaches you. And you notice all through the Bible, the, the number one metaphor God uses to describe his relationship with you is what? Bride and groom. When the world hears this, they scoff at this idea. And the reason they do is because in the world today, sex is the pinnacle of human existence. If you're not having sex, you're nobody. And that's just not true of the scripture. But we go back. What is the biblical sexual ethic? God gave us this gift. By the way, if God gives a gift, does that mean we're entitled to it? This is a gift God has given. It's not the ultimate gift. Salvation is. It's not the ultimate gift, a relationship between God the Father and his children. That's the ultimate relationship. Is it a good thing? Absolutely. Ask most men, they'll tell you. Let's be honest. But notice again the sequence. It's important that you get this. Verse 21 so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made the woman from the rib he had taken out of man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman. She was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, here's the progression of the Hebrew. Number one, here's how it works. You acknowledge you need a helper. That's your first move. Man, I need a helper. Second, 
you find them. That's a whole other sermon in and of itself. First, you acknowledge you need a helper. Second, you find a suitable helper. And then verse 24 says this, this is why, for this reason, for the reason that you needed a helper and you found one, for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. You and I read that in English, but what we don't realize is this is covenant language. It's saying this, you do not enter in to a uniting relationship until you leave your father and mother. Now, does that mean, okay, as soon as I get out of the house, I'm good? No, it's covenant language that represents this. You're not ready to marry and thus to engage in everything that comes after marriage until you are willing to leave the safety of the emotional, psychological, physiological, judicial, and economic security of your parents and commit to provide the same thing for your wife who's also making the same commitment to you. Do you understand? You're not ready to take the next step in uniting with somebody else until in your mind you say, see, if you're still depending on mom and dad to take care of you after the marriage, you've not left mommy and daddy. You're not leaving in Cleveland. This is why a man leaves. Now, does it mean you leave your father and mother behind? See, hope not to ever see you again. No, it's this word united, this Hebrew, this beautiful word is the same word used to describe God's relationship with us. So God commits to us emotionally, psychologically, physiologically, judicially, economically. So until you're ready as a man or woman to do that, you can't take the next step. And make no mistake, you know, I've always got young people. Show me in the Bible where it says, I can't sleep with a girl just because I'm not married. I'm doing it right now. I'm doing it right now. First, you realize you need a helper. Second, it's a suitable helper. Third, you commit to this relationship where you say, I am leaving the emotional, psychological, physiological, judicial, and economic security of my parents, and I'm making the commitment to do that and to operate that way with this person that I'm going to marry And the word united is a judicial commitment. It's a transaction. People say, well, you know, marriage is a man-made thing, so why do I need to get married? You know, marriage is not a man-made thing. Marriage originates with God between a man and a woman. In fact, it's a judicial commitment. There's a passage in Romans 4. Let me read it. It's Romans 4, 4, and 5. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Paul uses transactional language. He says, when you go to work, you get paid, but you deserve to get paid. It's a transaction because you earned it, but you can't earn salvation. The only way you can get salvation is by the grace and the mercy and the gift of God, but that's okay. God looks at the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross and he takes that and he credits it to your account Okay, so that you are justified. The columns are justified. You are seen by God as sinless because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. That is a judicial transaction. So why do I have to go through a ceremony and get married? Because in that, you are making a judicial transaction. You are saying, I am going to live for you, honor you, be faithful to you. I'm gonna leave my parents their emotional, psychological, economic protection, and now I'm trusting that you and I will provide that for each other. That's the next step. What comes after that then? You become one flesh. And they became one flesh and noticed as a result, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, why are we told that? 
Because if you haven't become one flesh and you've not made the judicial commitment and you've not been united to your wife in a covenant and you've not found a suitable helper and you've not realized you need a helper, then when you get naked, you're going to be ashamed. Or you should be. Because the sequential order is you acknowledge your need for a helper, you find a suitable helper, you make a united commitment, a covenant that you're going to provide for one another, leave your parents your mother and father, and be united to your wife or your husband. You make a judicial commitment in the beautiful concept ordained by God called marriage. And then, and only then, do you become one flesh. And when you do, in the consummation of the marriage, there's no need to be ashamed because God has brought you together. Now, interesting, the Hebrew word for one flesh is ikad. And that word, very clear, very precise, don't have to guess, it means permanent, holistic, exclusive union of two people. And it plays on the idea that in the Trinity, and you've heard me say this numerous times, there's perfect unity within the diversity of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all love each other equally. There's a union. They are committed to each other. So the writer of Genesis takes this perfect unity and diversity and applies it to male and female. There's diversity in male and female. My goodness, there's diversity but when they come together as one flesh, and by the way, there's something that we say, you know, I'm not persnickety about this, but just so you know, you know, we often say my better half, or we say you complete me. No, you don't. You're not two halves coming together to make one whole. You're two holes coming together. The only person that can make you whole is Jesus. If you're looking for your spouse to make you whole, then your spouse becomes a pseudo savior and nobody can live up to those kind of expectations. Two holes joined together, and now you are naked and unashamed. So then what is the biblical sexual ethic? If it's created and given by God as a gift, it's very simple, believe it or not. It's chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. That is the biblical sexual ethic. Chastity and singleness, not until you find a suitable helper. Do you leave the safety of the emotional, psychological, physiological, judicial, economic security of your parents and make that commitment to each other? Then you get married, a judicial commitment. Then you become one, consummate the marriage, and then you are naked and unashamed. And faithfulness in marriage. Instead of determining how we ought to live based upon enduring patterns of erotic desires, God calls us to live what are called holy lives. In other words, there's such a thing as holy sexuality. And remember, heterosexuality is not holy sexuality. I remember talking to a, this had to be years back, and she was weeping and crying up in my office. She goes, oh, I'm just so sad. Her son had just come out as gay, and she's so frustrated, and she made this comment to me, and she made a mistake because I knew her other son. And she said, I just wish my son could be normal like my other son. Now, here's what I was tempted to say. You mean like living and having sex with a woman he's not married to? That normal son? Heterosexuality is not holy sexuality. Holy sexuality is chastity and singleness. No sex before marriage because you haven't made the other commitments and faithfulness in marriage. No sex with anyone other than the marriage partner. And all of that is based on design. And sex outside these parameters is called sexual immorality. Now, before I continue, can I just give you a warning? You do not want to miss next week because next week, we go through Romans 1, verse by verse. And when we go through that text, 
I'll be able to highlight more of exactly the way the Scripture describes some of the things that happen in us as we are tempted outside of the parameters and confines of the biblical sexual ethic, because it happens to all of us. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. How is sexual immorality idolatry? Because you place sex at such a high priority over and above God. You worship it. You think you can't live without it and you think there's no life if you're not experiencing it, which means it has become your God. You serve it. You obey it over and above every other thing. And that's when it becomes an idol. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.